Good afternoon and welcome to the Becker Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC and the Future of Spine Virtual Event. We're so excited for you to join us for today's panel, How Can Spine Surgeons, Orthopedic Surgeons and Pain Management Physicians Thrive in a Changing Market? I'm Alan Condon with Becker Spine Review and I'll be your moderator for today's panel. This session is being recorded and will be available on demand following today's event. We will send you instructions on how to access the recordings once today's event concludes. At this time, it's my pleasure to kick off today's panel by introducing our presenters. Speaking on the panel today are Dr. Eric Anderson, co-founder and interventional pain management physician at Advanced Pain Institute of Texas. Dr. Ronald Michael, a neurosurgeon at Illinois Neurospine Institute. Dr. Zishan Tayeb, owner and pain management specialist at Pain Specialist of Cincinnati. And Dr. Daniel Mulconry, an orthopedic spine surgeon at Midwest Orthopedic Center. So kicking today's off, Dr. Taya, I'd love to go to you first with this one and just get your insights on where you see the biggest opportunities are for orthopedic and pain management practices in the current landscape. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, everything that you just put forth regarding all of us. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to try to put forth a, a little bit of what we know uh, for the, the landscape moving forward here in 2020 and amidst everything else that we've got going on. Uh, <clears throat> I've got the pain management background and a regenerative background, so I'll probably come at it from more of that angle as opposed to just, you know, uh, pure orthopedics. Uh, but I would say right now, the name of the game right now is just diversification, right? Uh, so especially if like you're in private practice or whatnot, uh, diversification I think is definitely key. Uh, the big things right now I would say right now are like re regenerative medicine. You know, it's a nice buzz term. Uh, depending on how, what the extent is of how involved you would want to get involved with regenerative medicine. It could be as simple as, you know, if you're an interventionalist or an orthopedic, you could be doing prolotherapy, PRP, all the way up to like stem cell type procedures, uh, stem cell uh, injections and things like that. Um, but you can also start getting into, uh, you know, nutritional optimization, hormonal optimization. Those aren't things that you don't necessarily have to do on your own, but you can start developing a network to be able to do things like that. Again, you know, in terms of, uh, a community or society where you know people you know want you know want uh, kind of concierge type treatment um, and you know they want to start getting better uh, in, in different ways as opposed to just maybe going and getting a surgery or getting a, uh, an injection or whatnot. Uh, we're just uh, trying to give people I think more of an opportunity in that regard. And I think the other big thing, uh, one thing I was uh, also scheduled to kind of speak at. Uh, you know, later on uh, at this uh, conference, had it been live, was supposed to be uh, the integration of uh, medical cannabis uh, into pain management. And so that's a big thing. There's a lot of uh, my colleagues that are in pain management that have kind of wooed away from that, uh, specifically here in the state of Ohio, just because of uh, the concern of the regulatory board and how that may be perceived. Uh, but, you know, we are pain management specialists, um, and the number one reason for that being prescribed is for pain. Uh, and then the, the secondary mood disorders. And so it is something to you know, really consider. I've been doing uh, the regenerative practice now for the last few years uh, on a lower level or lower scale. And then just over the last year, year and a half, I've been doing the, uh, the, the medical cannabis. Uh, and again, I'm not speaking to results uh, today, uh, but I can just say that in terms of opportunities and the practices, uh, the practices going forward at this point, those are probably two of the biggest areas I would think that uh, people could benefit from. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Tayeb. Um, Dr. Michael, I'd like to go to you and get your thoughts on this. I agree with uh, much of what uh, Dr. Tayeb said. I'd like to add, 
in general over the last few years opportunities simply as a hedge against continuously declining reimbursement. So some things that physicians can do is uh, to dispense medications from their offices, from their practices. Uh, of course, some physicians have gone on to get physical therapy. A really interesting new advance that'll, I think, allow physicians to get into the imaging arena uh, more readily. There's a, there's a new company, and I have no interest, I'd just like to talk about it simply because it really is important. It's a portable bedside, basically MRI. You wheel the MRI from room to room or from bed to bed. So far, they only do brains and cervical spines. Uh, they are working on making it uh, available for also doing lumbar spine. That now brings imaging to watch in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael, for sharing your insight there. Um, Dr. Anderson, let's go to you next for this one. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, great input by everyone. I uh, echo a lot of the things that have already been said. <clears throat> I guess for me, what I think is one of the most important things is um, the word innovation. And that's usually like a Silicon Valley type of word that kind of portrays high tech stuff. But for me, innovation just simply means that finding a better way to meet your patient needs. <clears throat> and so in this current climate right now, I think most of our patients are kind of screaming like safety. <clears throat> How can things be safer than what they were before? And for us, that's um, new sterilization techniques that are quicker than current ones. Even getting handles that are antimicrobial, for example. Um, you know, we're researching UV lights and their effectiveness and how quickly we can utilize those in our procedure suites to maximize the safety and efficiency of the procedures. And so I think that moving forward, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on safety and innovating in that sector. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. And Dr. McConroy, anything to tack on here? Uh, all the speakers did an excellent job so far in highlighting many of the aspects as we're moving forward with uh, care and the upper and the orthopedic and, and pain uh, landscape. I think I see it just slightly different for myself. I see in orthopedics the value, the development of value-based care. So we need, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, how do we develop value-based care? How do we then leverage that information with hospitals, health systems, insurance providers? How do we demonstrate that we're creating care that is value? valuable for the patient and the payer and how do we move forward uh, to maintain our levels of reimbursement, maintain our care for our patients and how do we document and create that um, uh, conversation with those uh, employers. Thank you, Dr. Mulconray. Uh, moving on, next question. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, obviously, consolidation within orthopedics has been a pretty big trend in recent years, especially with the emergence of private equity firms, uh, smaller practices banding together into larger practices. Uh, I just want to go, I've got to go to Dr. Michael for this one first and, and kind of get your insight. Do you think consolidation will continue to be a trend uh, in the orthopedic space post-pandemic or will it not have any impact at all in there, do you think? For better or for worse, I think it will, just because of the economies of scale that are involved. Um, I myself have resisted uh, any of these trends for the last quarter century. I'm a 
dinosaur. I'm a solo practice private practitioner. There aren't many of me left. Uh, but in terms of the private equity thing, uh, Wall Street went through that with ophthalmology practices, and they learned a very valuable lesson. The moment they bought the ophthalmology practice, large ones, multi-physician uh, multi ones, the productivity predictably dropped. In other words, once you sell out, the incentive to continue to work those extra hours, et cetera, kind of goes away. So perhaps they've figured things out, perhaps they kind of fall off. Uh, but, you know, Wall Street sees an opportunity always. And everything is going to earn everything else. Any, any small cottage industry gets uh, wrapped up and derivatized and, and bought up. Okay, thank you, Dr. Michael. Uh, Dr. Mulconnery, let's go to you for next, um, get your insights and uh, consolidation in the orthopedic space. Uh, I agree, especially in the post-COVID era and moving forward, consolidation was already occurring in orthopedics. It's going to continue to occur. And I think it has to go back with my first point in developing a value-based care system. Um, uh, commend Dr. Michael for being an independent practitioner. I too am in private practice. I mean, I'm one of 16 surgeons. And I think moving forward, we see that we even need to get larger than we are now. Uh, we need, and unfortunately, larger groups can create more data. Um, we can create metrics that we track, provide to the insurance provider. And so going forward, groups are gonna have to get bigger to be able to compete and demonstrate value-based care. And I think we're gonna see it in orthopedics. I think in orthopedics, um, I'm a spine surgeon, but my total joint colleagues are already going through this. There are specific metrics that the insurance company wants to see, that the hospital wants to see. They've been there, but they're gonna start tying that into reimbursement and into um, uh, you know, med Medicare reimbursement payment for, for these procedures. And so the, unfortunately, I fear that the day of the solo practitioner is is going to go away at some point. Great, and uh, Dr. Anderson, let's get, I'd love to hear your insights on this as well. Are you, are you seeing the same uh, in terms of value-based care? Do you think there's some obvious benefits there, but, but obviously a downside for the, the smaller solo independent practices? Um, yeah, I agree. We're small also. It's <clears throat> me and my partner in a, in a PA right now. And so, you know, we kind of see it every day. We're down in Texas, so I feel like we're a little bit behind maybe the curve in other parts of the country in terms of consolidation, but we're still seeing it in every sector at a, at a rapid pace. And I think the current climate has probably only accelerated that pace. I think when choosing a strategic partner, if you are going to um, merge or sell out, it's, it's gonna be very important to make sure that what you want is in terms of your vision and values is an alignment <clears throat> with that organization and that you both have specific expectations of you know where we're going with this and, and what our target is. and. And I think um, that value-based care is here to stay, and that probably is going to be one of the targets for most of these mergers. And Dr. Taib, uh, anything to attack on here, even from the pain management perspective? Are you seeing the same things? Yeah, um, I'll piggyback a little bit off of what Dr. Anderson was saying uh, and what he previously mentioned earlier, and just kind of using the, the, the term that he utilized of uh, innovation. So I think in pain management, just because there's you know, over 100 million people in pain and those numbers just continue to rise and there's different ways to try to handle that. You know, obviously we're kind of amidst the opioid epidemic, but there's other things out there too um, you know, that are contributing to their pain when you look at a person holistically. 
Um, so I, I think, again, you know, just kind of using uh, innovation and then just looking at some of the different uh, verticals or horizontals that could be kind of put into play here, if you're in private practice, I think could mitigate for if, if a person doesn't want to consolidate, they might be able to, you know, maintain. Uh, but there is a lot in a sense in terms of what needs to be put in to make that happen. So it just depends on the person's like entrepreneurial spirits and, you know, can you take a hit or two, um, you know, kind of be on your back maybe for a little bit and then just kind of get back up and kind of keep moving forward. Um, I also agree, I think, uh, with a statement that was made earlier just regarding, you know, the, the, the trend for like, uh, I, I should say the smaller practices, or if it's just someone that's like solo, where you probably do need to bring in some some numbers. You, know, you got to bring in you know a person or two or someone to help you know facilitate that. So even if it's not necessarily another clinician, you you will have to get involved with you know physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, maybe you know have you know different consultants come in from a from a business perspective that have a clinical background. So more like uh, instead of getting like chief executive officers, but someone that kind of understands integration, you know, so like a chief integration officer uh, and things like that. So um, I, I, I do feel that the trend based on my colleagues and people around me uh, is leading towards more consolidation. Uh, but for those who want to try to you know, stay independent or with a small practice, I think it is doable. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Tayeb. Um, Dr. Anderson, I'm going to go to you for this next question first. Um, obviously, you know, in recent years, we're seeing an increased shift for orthopedic procedures, especially away from hospitals toward outpatient settings. Do, do you see the COVID pandemic having a, you know, a significant impact on this trend? And do you see, you know, do you see it sharpening the drive of these procedures toward, you know, outpatient settings and ASC environments? Yeah, Alan, um, I work exclusively in outpatient setting. Um, I do anesthesia a couple mornings a week and the rest of the time we're on our outpatient pain management facility. I think as long as um, you know the safety allows it, I think they're going to continue to trend that. And I think this COVID crisis has probably accelerated that trend to some degree in trying to keep some of these some of these procedures that can be facilitated in an ambulatory surgery center in that setting and use the hospitals really for probably what they originally designed for, and that's to really take care of really sick people. Thank, thank you, Dr. Anderson and uh, Dr. McConroy. Anything to add here? I, I agree with Dr. Anderson. I think that the move is going to continue to go outpatient and spine surgery. It's been moving outpatient for years. I actually believe that the COVID crisis is going to accelerate it. I see it in my own practice. Patients who maybe spent the night before and went home the next day, not spending the night anymore. Everybody's going home same day for smaller uh, outpatient-based spine procedures uh, that fall within the outpatient category. But some of those patients probably would have tried to stay the 23 hours before. But now in my practice, I'm sending so many higher percentage of patients home in the post-COVID night. And I think it's going to stay. I think patients like it. I think it's what patients are looking for. They're looking for comfort, comfort care. And I think they're going to feel more comfortable at home. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Mulconry. And Dr. Tayeb, anything to tack on here? I agree with them wholeheartedly. I don't have too much more to say about that because I work in a private practice setting as well, and I don't usually do uh, really any type of work uh, in, in, in a hospital. Um, but from what I do understand about that, I think one of the things that we'll have to realize is that, yeah, the, the pendulum is swinging, and it's probably because of the acute crisis that we're amidst at this point. Um, I, I know that hospitals are big drivers in terms of, you know, the, the income for, you know, for our, uh, our, our body that we live in over here. 
Uh, I have a feeling that when income starts to drop in some of the, you know, in the hospital settings, they're going to do, there's going to be a push to try to get certain things, some of the smaller procedures kind of back in that direction again. Whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know, but I just feel like there will be a push for something like that. Thank you for sharing your thoughts there, Dr. Tide. And Dr. Michael, uh, finally, love to get your thoughts on this, especially from the, the spine perspective. I agree the push is going to be there, or rather the trend anyway. I did my first outpatient lumbar fusion minimally invasively in about 2001, when no one, virtually no one was even thinking about that. Uh, and, I, and of course, the numbers have continued to increase. I don't think it's going to go as quickly as people would hope. In other words, we send them home in two to four hours now. I'm personally paranoid. I keep the cervical spine patients the better part of the problem is most surgeons will not embrace a disruptive or even an incremental tech. They generally practice the same way they did. I suspect that the move to minimally invasive spine surgeries is going to be when the older surgeons retire and the new trainees take, it, take over. So it'll be basically attrition-based rather than truly everyone just retraining. I, I just don't see a lot of surgeons who are set in their way retraining. Uh, everyone's still, lots of people that are still doing open procedures. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Michael. And then, well, let's, Dr. Michael, let's stick with you for this, for this next question as well. Um, obviously, looking ahead to the end of the year and towards 2021, um, I'd, li I'd love to hear kind of strategies that, that your practice has taken to kind of prepare for a price transparency. Uh, I actually did that several years ago. Uh, I do a lot of work comp and personal injury and without don't like is a lot of haggling at the end where the attorneys will tell me, well, you know, these fees are it's a standard tactic. They just want to lower what they have to pay you. So I began providing my patients with my fee schedule on the first visit. I've already been doing that for several years. And I think it's a reasonable practice if for no other reason than to, uh, to avoid those disputes to I'll uh, lessen them. Great, thank you. Uh, and Dr. Anderson, uh, how about you? What strategies your practice has taken to prepare for price transparency? And how, how do you see it developing? You know, 2021, what, what, will, what will the field look like with new price transparency rules coming into effect? Yeah, Alan, um, <clears throat> we're very transparent with our prices from the beginning. Um, we really have to be, we are a young practice. We've been around about four years and patients um, are wanting to know now with these high deductible plans, what they're expected to pay and if they can afford it. And if they can't, what sort of payment arrangements can be made to accommodate that. Um, <clears throat> so that involves calling them, you know, days to weeks in advance and, and letting them know. And the facilities are doing the same thing as well. I think that's going to move, continue to move in that direction. I think it's the right thing to do. I think some of the confusion lies in the in insurance games that kind of have to be played where, you know, patients get confused, for example, with charges and, and what the contracted rates are, for example. And they say, oh my gosh, this facility charges, you know, like $20,000 for a knee and they may only get paid two or $3,000 for that. And they don't understand that this is this part of this system that's been set up that, um, kind of requires that uh, because of all the kind of hoops you have to jump through. So I think moving forward, getting better uh, community and, and patient education on the whole process of how this works will shed some light on some of these, I think, discrepancies in the system and, and might actually make it better long term. 
Definitely. Definitely. So uh, education for patients, obviously, very important. Some some big payer challenges there that will have to be navigated. Um, Dr. Ty, I'd love to get your insights on uh, on this as well. Yeah, so Dr. Anderson's making it kind of easy for me. It uh, looks like uh, I must be doing something right because I seem to be kind of following that same trend. Um, the only other couple, uh, couple of things I would maybe uh, not necessarily point out, but just kind of, you know, maybe add to that in terms of comment wise, is that uh, just, just like with healthcare and, you know, patients trying to take uh, responsibility or trying to encourage patients to take responsibility for their healthcare, I think a part of that also has to involve, you know, them also looking into and talking with their, uh, their carriers. You know, um, because there, there, sometimes, you know, we get told one thing and then there could be a discrepancy on that end as well. And I've seen that happen, at least in my practice. So I also tell, uh, I try to encourage patients, especially the ones that have the high deductibles and the, and the co-pays and whatnot, uh, you know, not necessarily the Medicare and Medicaid, but you know, the ones that are in private insurance and, what, uh, and et cetera. So actually, you know, take that and, and go and look, you know, kind of go and verify this is what's going to be out of pocket and whatnot, because then it's not like, oh, well, you told me this and then, you know, you end up getting stuck. Uh, potentially having more of a conversation about finances than actually being able to you know do your job as a clinician. Um, we try to be as upfront as possible. I'm not going to you know repeat or echo everything that Dr. Anderson already said. So I think from that standpoint, that would be the only other thing I would add in that regard. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Jive. And finally, Dr. Mulconroy, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, on on this as well. Finally. I, I think our our approach at our practice is very similar to all the other physicians that have spoke. I don't think we're quite as transparent as Dr. Michael, uh, but uh, we do direct people to the business office for any questions that they have. And we try to be upfront and honest with the patients. And just to highlight what Dr. Tayeb had said, the problem is with the insurance provider. When you ask a patient, what insurance do you have? Most of them are thumbing through their wallet trying to figure it out. And, and they don't know, um, maybe not the plan that they have, the specific coverage that they have, their deductible. And so when you start talking about prices, patients, they get, they get confused. It's a lot of information for them. Um, you know, I think going back to highlight value-based care, you know, one way to look at it regionally is to address it is, can we provide the quality care for less price? And, and just like Dr. Michael highlighted, doing these procedures, the type of procedures we're doing, spine procedures, outpatient, obviously the cost of that procedure isn't so much less to the patient because the hospital is creating the largest charge for these patients. It's really not the physician's fees that are overwhelming these patients, it's, it's the hospital charges. And by getting those patients outpatient procedures, we're able to um, minimize the hospital bill or, or surgery center bill, depending on where, where you operate. Fantastic, thank you so much, Dr. Malconry. Um, and I'd, I'd like to stick with you actually to fire off uh, for our final question. Um, obviously, telehealth and tele telemedicine has been such a hot topic uh, across the healthcare field over the last two months or so. Um, and I'd love to kind of get your insight on on how you kind of see the technology. How has how has it impacted your practice over the past two months? And how do you see it developing post pandemic? Do you see a lot of the previous restrictions coming back into effect or remaining open um, after the crisis ends? You know, I, it's interesting. I did absolutely zero telehealth prior to COVID, and now I do telehealth weekly. Um, not all the practitioners in my practice have signed on for that. Uh, I think the patient satisfaction has been really high. Uh, I think that it, going forward, I think it's going to be very popular with a certain amount of patients. Most patients are tech savvy enough to do it. It's, it's not difficult. Um, problem for a provider is when do you do it we i'm sure we already already we all have a, 
busy practices already. So it's like, when do I add this in, in addition to clinic and, and surgery? Um, you know, I think it's going, it's hard to say, but I think it's going to remain unshackled. I think patients are going to want it. Uh, I don't know if insurers want to continue to pay for a standard office appointment if audio and video capabilities are utilized. So, you know, obviously payers seem to drive um, practice. And so, but if, but if uh, providers are still being reimbursed and uh, patients are asking for it, I don't see how uh, it's not going to become a bigger part of medicine moving forward. Absolutely. Um, do you agree with that assertion, Dr. Anderson? I'm sorry, could you repeat that one more time, Alan? Uh, do you agree with uh, Dr. Mulconry there in, in terms of um, patients wanting to, you know, these telehealth visits and appointments to continue in terms of physician satisfaction and, and patient satisfaction? Do you think that telehealth and telemedicine will remain uh, unshackled post-pandemic? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that for the most part. Um, I do agree, you know, um, the payers drive practice. That's kind of the key phrase. A lot of these payers might want to, you know, rescind on this shortly. I think if Medicare leads the charge on this as they have been, <clears throat> that uh, has a good potential to maintain, you know, to continue to be unshackled. Um, there are some pain points depending on the system you use. In, in telehealth, I feel like uh, the phrase, you know, complexity is the enemy of execution is kind of key. If you make a complex, you know, in pain management, we have a lot of patients that are old and you know, over 80. And so you really have to make it simple for them to click a text message or click an email and it's there and it's ready to go. Um, I feel like if you don't have that, it will continue to make it challenging for patients. And there's going to be a certain proportion of patients that don't uh, want to have telehealth. We've had some of those now. Um, that are saying, well, I want to be seen, I want, I want to be examined. And so um, I think having this as an option is going to enhance the, the healthcare for, for everyone long term. And the way the system is adapted, considering such an old system that's usually slow to move, uh, the system is done well adapting to telehealth. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. And uh, Dr. Tayyip, from, from a pain management perspective, how, how has telehealth impacted your practice or helped over the past uh, couple of months? Well, it definitely kept us open. I can tell you that. Uh, uh, you know, Mr. DeWine uh, here, our our, uh, our mayor, he ended up, uh, you know, shutting things down, trying to stay ahead of the curve, uh, you know, pretty early on. And so it, it did put a lot of restriction on us. And so it did give us the opportunity to continue to at least see people and keep them managed. And as we know, in pain management, you know, if you're on, on some type of a medication or whatnot, you, you could you definitely have like withdrawals if you're not getting get your medication but i think we've also noted that you know during this this crisis anything that will you know increase stress uh or basically affect someone's you know psychology in some way shape or form you know can lead them you know down the road of or an increased chance of having issues with their opioid use disorder or you know creating that or some type of substance use disorder so i think this is where like i was kind of you know you were talking using the, the term shackled or unshackled you know, this is kind of like where I was shackled in a sense to kind of figure out, okay, well, how much, you know, can I do from a telemedicine perspective? And I think there's a fair amount. Uh, and again, I think, you know, it was there before. Um, I, it kind of got, you know, let, let open, you know, during this crisis out of necessity. But again, once again, I think, you know, the pendulum will swing. There's going to have to be some, you know, refinement. There's going to have to be honing of, you know, however this has been done. 
because I, I don't think we can just practice, you know, all of pain management just via telemedicine, but I do believe that it's going to open up a lot of doors in terms of, you know, making sometimes like a, like a two week or a higher risk patient uh, that needs to be seen maybe weekly or, uh, you know, biweekly or whatnot to be able to help facilitate some of those types of visits. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts there, Dr. Tayeb. And uh, Dr. Michael, I'd love to hear your insights here as well. I had done a little bit of it before this and doing more now. And actually, I'd like to use it every time I can. Uh, name a few times, of course, that we can't do it is for a wound check, for example, after even, after even minor pain procedures, uh, you would want to do that just in case. I would want to see patients physically also for their first visit uh, to introduce yourself. I think that uh, personal touch is important. But I think for subsequent routine follow-ups, uh, I'm, I'm going to enjoy doing this more and more. You know, we always laugh that the office visit is a loss leader, as it were. Um, so why not cut out the commute? Yes, they may pay us a little less, but at least you're saving time going into the office. This is a sort of thing that you can schedule to have at your home and do the truly critical face-to-face -face meetings uh, when you're going to the hospital or your office for other things where, where you absolutely have to go in. I think it'll help. I'm personally, uh, I'm personally going to take advantage. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael. Um, so thank you so much to everyone, all our presenters today. Uh, before we close out, I'd just like to give you all one more opportunity to share any final thoughts. Uh, Dr. Michael, we'll, we'll start with you. If you could kind of give me your key 30 second takeaway from today's panel that you'd like to share with our audience members. I think the other uh, physicians discussed it a number of different ways. Let's call it innovation, let's call it evolving. Whatever it is, you have to continue to improve the care you deliver. You have to continue to be more efficient to survive in, a, uh, in an increasingly more And you need to expand your services uh, to the extent you can, to the extent that they fit within the mission. Sorry, thank you, Dr. Michael. And we'll, we'll go to Dr. Tayeb next. Yeah, I would just say that, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's probably... You know, with, with the changes, there's always changes. Uh, and we were put in a, you know, amidst, you know, you know, a crisis that maybe people would have never foreseen, you know, happening. So I think at the end of the day, you know, we have to stay connected. You know, that's, I think, one, you know, theme or big lesson, I think that maybe we could have all taken home from, you know, COVID and having to do social distancing and things like that. And there are ways now to stay connected. So I think it's a matter of just staying connected, you know, you know with each other, with our societies that we are a part of, um, and so on. Like, this is a, a great way you know, and I thank Beckers for being able to still put something up like this uh, so that, you know, we can still communicate, you know, to the masses that, you know, that, uh, you know, would have been partaking at the, uh, at the conference in, you know, in a couple of weeks. So uh, staying connected, stay informed, and then just understand that the landscape is changing. And so we have to evolve along with that. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Tayeb. And let's go to Dr. Anderson. Yes, I uh, definitely agree with both what Dr. Michael and Dr. Taib said. Um, <clears throat> I think innovation is key. Meeting the future needs of the population is what's going to keep things going. And if you're not growing, um, you're dying. And so being able to shift your vision and your, and your mission in a, in a rapid manner is critical. Um, you know, our, our, our mission and vision after the starter was to not have to furlough or lay off any of our staff. And so that 
was completely different than what it was in February. And so succeeding in that now and then working kind of month to month instead of year to year for the foreseeable future will be the biggest adaptation. I think everybody's gonna kind of have to make moving forward. Fantastic. So we've got uh, being able to rapidly shift, uh, staying connected, and from Dr. Michael, the expansion of services. Dr. Mulconry, looks to get your, your 30 second takeaway from today's panel you'd like to share with our audience also. You know, I enjoyed the time today on this meeting. I enjoyed the other panelists. I think they all had fantastic ideas and I like hearing other providers from across the United States. And I think it's clear, everyone on the panel is saying the same thing. You cannot be stagnant. You need to adjust to your environment. And, and it, everyone highlighted that you still need to provide great patient care because that's what it comes down to. So if we continue to provide great, great patient care, develop our practices to meet our patients' needs, then I think that we'll uh, continue to move forward. And you, you know, next year when we have the Becker's meeting, we'll, we may even have different completely different topics. So you have to constantly be able to change, constantly be able to adapt to the environment that we're in. And it seems like all the other panelists are just doing a great job with this as well. So I really enjoyed the meeting. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Mulconroy, for sharing your thoughts there. Uh, well, that's all we've got time for. Uh, I wanted to thank each of you, Drs. Tayeb, Anderson, Dr. Michael, and Dr. Mulconry, for all your time, thoughtfulness, and insights today. Uh, and to our, all of our attendees who joined us, thank you for taking the time to be a part of our spine, orthopedic, and pain management-driven ASC and the Future of Spine virtual event.